At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of Habakkuk and chapter number 3. You know, in 1952, there was a movie musical that came out by the name of Singing in the Rain, and it featured a song by the same name. And that movie starred Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds. Now, the storyline of that movie was set in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, there was a shift going on in Hollywood from silent movies to talkies. Those of you who are younger may not know that when movies first started, there was no sound in them at all. It was a little bit like closed captioning. And eventually they added sound. And so the movie was set in that kind of an environment. And to many people today, Singing in the Rain is considered to be the top musical ever. In fact, the song Singing in the Rain, the American Film Institute made a list of the top 100 movie songs of all time, and Singing in the Rain was ranked as number three. You might wonder what was number one. Well, number one was the song Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. Now, you hear all that, and you say, well, how does that relate to the book of Habakkuk? Well, the title that we have given to today's message is Singing in the Storm. And this week and next, we will be looking at how Habakkuk chooses to sing in the storm. I simply want to remind you that this book opens up with Habakkuk in distress, and he is discouraged, and he's experiencing difficulties that lead to that distress and discouragement. He is experiencing anxiety. He is experiencing confusion by all the circumstances, the difficult circumstances that were coming upon him. And as he gains perspective from the Lord, he begins to sing in the storm. Now, I want to remind you that the book of Habakkuk, it begins with Habakkuk grumbling. It ends with Habakkuk glorifying God. How does that happen? Well, the lesson we can all focus on in the book of Habakkuk is how he makes the transition from grumbling to glorifying God. And that is going to be part of our focus this week. Now, I want to just simply remind you of the way the book of Habakkuk functions. Remember, in chapters 1 and 2, there's a series of questions that he has and answers that God gives. Remember, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, His question to God is these things were coming upon him and he was experiencing this difficulty. He says, where are you, God? You seem to be inactive. I don't sense that you're here in this. And then we have the first answer from God in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1, where basically God says to him, be astonished, be astonished. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to discipline the nation of Judah. He was basically saying, My plan is bigger than you know. And that's what he would often want to say to you and me. And then we have the second question that comes in chapters 1 and 2, verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1. And that is, in light of what he's just learned, why, God? Why why would you do this? 
how could you, how would you allow, and you could put whatever you want in the blank. God, how could you allow blank? And the answer that God gives in all of chapter 2, which we saw last time, is he says, I will make it right. You don't have to worry about this. I'm in charge of the universe. I will make it right. Wait and watch. Judgment is going to come. Now, Anne of Austria said this to Cardinal Richelieu. She said this. I love this. She said, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end he pays. Great truth in that statement. Now again, just to remind you of the flow of the book, because we're moving into chapter 3, we see that in chapters 1 and 2, we see Habakkuk's perplexity. Now we come to chapter 3, and we see Habakkuk's praise. His focus in the first two chapters is on life's problems. That begins to shift in chapter 3, where his focus is on God's person. And the question we need to be asking ourselves in our life as we experience various kinds of things that are difficult and adverse is where are our eyes? Is our focus on life's problems or is our focus on God's person? So where you are right now today, where are your eyes? Now, I've got an outline here of chapter 3 that we're going to be looking at. We're going to look at the first 15 verses. First of all, we're going to see in verse 1 Habakkuk's song. And then in verse 2, we're going to look at Habakkuk's request. And then third, we're going to look at Habakkuk's praise of God in verses 3 to 15. So let's begin by looking at Habakkuk's song in verse 1. I would just invite you to follow along. It's a very short verse. Here's what it says in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionote. Now, what was Shigionote? Well, it was a type of tune. This is, in chapter 3, a prayer song that was written by Habakkuk. We know that because this Shigioth is a type of tune. We also know that this was a song by the very last phrase of the chapter, verse 19, at the very end it says, for the choir director on my stringed instrument. He plays the stringed instruments. It makes us wonder if Habakkuk was actually a Levite. In other words, in modern lingo, we wonder if he was not on the worship team in the temple. We also know that it is a song, a prayer song, because the word selah, occurs to the right in our Bibles three different times in this section. And Selah was a musical notation. In fact, it is used regularly in the Psalms, but this is the only place in the, enti- in the entire Old Testament where this term Selah shows up outside of the book of Psalms. And remember, the book of Psalms is really a book of songs. So that's what's what this is, this is a a prayer song. And let's go back to verse 1 where he says, it is according to shigio note. What was a shigio note? Well, it seems best to understand it as a tune that was to be sung with intense feeling and emotion. Today, we might say, 
It is a song, a prayer song to be sung enthusiastically, enthusiastically. So the next thing we're going to look at, having looked a little bit at this song that he's composing, is Habakkuk's request in chapter 3 and verse 2. Notice there he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. I really like the alternative reading in the margin of the New American Standard. It says this, I stand in awe of your work, O Lord. He is in the process of setting aside this attitude, I need all the answers, God. And now he's beginning to start a shift where he wants to submit himself to the sovereign will of God. He goes on in his request, you'll notice in verse 2, he says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make it known. That little phrase, in the midst of the years, is a phrase that would mean in our day, in our time. Lord, in our time, in our day, revive your work. Be at work. He's really saying, do what is necessary, God, to accomplish your purposes. Prune, purify, if that's what you must do. He is simply requesting that God would show to everyone, really, what he is about and what he is seeking to accomplish. Part of his attitude here and his request is he's saying to God, your will be done. Your will be done. And then, at the very end of this request is the only personal request that Habakkuk has. You'll notice there in verse 2, just a couple of words, his personal request to God. In wrath, remember mercy. In your holy anger, Lord, remember mercy. Remember that mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve to receive. And so his request in a special way is, would you show us mercy, God? It's a statement of humility on the part of Habakkuk. Well, then that leads us to the third division we have in the book. Having looked at his song and his request, we have Habakkuk's praise of God in verses 3 to 15. Now, as we look at this praise of God, I want you to understand there's a blend here of past, future, and the ultimate future. There's a little bit of the past when he's going to look back on the nation's deliverance in the exodus from Egypt and the events of the conquest. There's going to be a focus a little bit on the future, the future deliverance they were going to have because of the promise of God from the Chaldeans. And then there's a little element also in here, as he's praising God, of the future, the ultimate future of the Messiah and the end time. So this is a song, a prayer song. Let's begin by looking at stanza number one. And stanza number one in the song is, Our great God is always at work. And we see that in verses three to nine. If you look at verse three in your Bible, it mentions how God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Taman was near Sinai, which was part of the wilderness experience, and Mount Paran was also near Mount 
Sinai. And so part of what he's focusing here is how God was at work in the Exodus and in their time in the wilderness. You notice he says in in verse 4, speaking of God, his radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hands. This seems to be a poetic allusion to the pillar of fire that was with the nation in the wilderness. Now, we need to remember that the time of the Exodus for the nation of Israel was a very, very difficult time. Sometimes we forget that. And yet, as difficult as that time was, and remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God was with them at every step. God was leading them. God was always at work. God was providing for them. Now, again, sometimes we just jump over all of that, and we don't really have a good picture of what that means. It was astounding for God to be at work and to provide for them over those years. Harlan Betts has done a really great job of summarizing what God had to do during this time. He said, if you just think of the manna alone that God had to provide those tens of thousands of people, he said, the manna just alone, not counting the quail, the manna alone would amount to 200 railroad boxcars every day of manna that would need to be provided. And he also calculated out if you talked about the water that God would have to be at work providing every day, water for people and animals, that amount of water would take 2,800 railroad tanker cars every single day. God was always at work. He was always at work providing, and he did that for 40 years. 40 years. Notice in verse 5, it says, Before him, God, goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. Probably an allusion here to the plagues of Egypt that would go on. Now, by the way, when we start talking about plagues, I've been getting a question from many people uh, about the pandemic of COVID-19. And people have asked me, do you believe that COVID-19 is a judgment of God? Now, remember, there have been a lot of epidemics and pandemics and disasters and other things that have gone on over the years. Are any of them the judgment of God? And I, my first answer to that is, wait, that's way above my pay grade. That's a God question not a Bruce question. But I do have three comments about this whole idea. And here's the first one. I believe that COVID-19 is another reminder that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is infested with disease and difficulty and suffering and evil. And all of those things come from mankind's rebellion. And for followers of Jesus, it's important, even at a time of a pandemic, that we remember this place is not our home. We're, we're only camping here. This isn't our home at all. Second comment I would have is that I think the COVID-19 pandemic is a foretaste of things that are to come that are going to be far worse than this in the era and the time in which 
God begins to return to this world, when he begins to judge this world. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8, it tells us there's a time coming when, think about this, one quarter of the world is going to die of an outbreak of violence, disease, and famine. Now, we can read about that. That's part of the future judgment of God on this world, and we can just jump right past it. But one quarter of the world's population, that is just less than two billion people. Two billion, what does that mean? That's 2,000 million people who are going to die from a future event. And so when we experience something like this, it's just a foretaste of what is to come. Now is the time to turn to Jesus. Third comment I would have is that as much as we get upset by this pandemic, there's an everyday pandemic that we routinely ignore. It is here every day, every month, and every year. And that is the pandemic of physical death. Annual deaths in the United States of America are about 3 million. We're alarmed at having deaths so far of 100,000 from this pandemic. But every year, there's 3 million Americans who disappear from the planet. Now, that is a real pandemic. Annual deaths in the world, about 56 million every year die And so we need to remember that there's a more critical pandemic overall, and that is the pandemic of death. And what we've experienced in the COVID pandemic is just a fraction. Men and women, the truth is that you, myself, all of us, we're one breath away from eternity. And the question is, who holds the keys to death and Hades? And the answer to that is Jesus does. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. It says that God stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and he startled the nations. Probably a reference to the conquest again when they came into the land and God was with them. And then you look, at, look over to verse 8 for a moment. He asks the question here, did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? Uh, Again, these are allusions, it appears to be, to the dividing of the Red Sea and the dividing of the Jordan River. You see the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and 15. You see the dividing of the Jordan River in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. And and when he asks these questions, it seems best to think of them as questions that anticipate a, a no question. He went mad at... Red Sea. He wasn't mad at the Jordan River. No, he was at work. And as we look at all of these things, there's a principle or a thrust that we must understand. I think this is the principle we draw from all of this. When we reflect back on what God has done in the past, our trust deepens in the present. That's a key thought. Let's think about it again. When we reflect back on what God has done in the past, our trust deepens in the present. And that's exactly what Habakkuk was experiencing. So we've looked at the first stanza, which is where he 
declares in his praise to God that our great God is always at work. The second stanza is this, our great God is always in control. And we see that in verses 10 to 12. Look with me at, at verse 10. He says, the mountains saw you, God, and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. What's he picturing here? Well, the picture here is that the mountains see the Lord, think about this, and shake before him. He talks about here how the deep sea, that's, what the, that's really a reference to the sea, lifts its hands in praise. In verse 11, he talks about how the sun and the moon stood in their places. Again, a reference to what happens in Joshua chapter 10. What's going on here? What's he communicating? He's communicating that our God is in control. He's always in control. And the symbols of power and influence in nature that we know, the mountains, the sea, the sun, and the moon. He says, all of them, God, all of them submit to you. Our great God is in control. Notice verse 12, he says, In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. He's just acknowledging here that God is large and in charge. In all the nations and all the peoples and every place, you are in control of them. I think here in verse 12, we even see an allusion to the second coming of Christ from the book of the Revelation in chapter number 19. You can go and read about it. I mean, he is totally sovereign. Our great God is the sovereign king. Now, sometimes when we talk about God being sovereign, we, we misunderstand some concepts. It's important to understand that God's sovereignty is not fatalism. Fatalism is purposeless inevitability. There's just no purpose to anything. It just inevitably happens. That's fatalism. That's not what the biblical truth of sovereignty is. Sovereignty says this, that there is a living, loving God who is in control of everything. He is in control, yes, of all of our setbacks. He is in control, yes, of all of the losses and calamities that we might experience in our life. He is in control of every circumstance and every event that may unfold in our life. Even when we don't understand why, our God is always in control. He is sovereign. He is sovereign, yes, even in the face of evil. When it comes to evil, here's what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that God permits it. We see that in Acts chapter 14 and verse 16, even related to the crucifixion. That was evil there, and yet God permitted it to happen. We know that God brings good out of evil. We see that in the life of Joseph. Again, we see that uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 2. God allows evil to test and discipline his children. See that some even in the book of Job. 
But most importantly, God promises to punish evil and fully deliver us from it. Men and women, our God is always in control. That's what Habakkuk is praising him for. You know, Twyla Paris wrote a song a number of years ago called God is in Control. And I, I just want to look at the lyrics of this because I think it's, it's, it's so wonderful. The song goes like this. There is no time for fear. There is a time for faith and determination. Don't lose the vision here carried away by emotion. God is in control. We believe his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. What a great truth that is. And notice he goes on, she goes on to, to write these in the lyrics of her song. There is no power above or beside him we know. God is in control. He has never let you down. Why start to worry now? And she goes on to write, He is still the Lord of all we see, and He is still the loving Father watching over you and me. Yes, he says in his song, Our great God is always at work. He says, Our great God is always in control. And then in verses 13 and 15, Stanza number three, our great God always provides salvation. Look at verse 13. He says there, the first phrase, you went forth for the salvation of your people. That's what God did at the Exodus. That's exactly what he did. That's what God did at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what God will do. At the end time, and you can turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verses 4 to 9, to see that. Notice in verse 13, he says, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. That's exactly what God did to Pharaoh in the Exodus. That's exactly what God was going to do later, part of the allusion to the future, what God did to Satan at the cross. And that's exactly what God is going to do in the end time to the Antichrist himself. Verses 14 and 15, he's talking about those who had evil intent against them. And he says there, you rescued and saved us by your power, God, that is what you did. Now, we've moved through a big portion of the book, but there's one final section to come, and he's going to end with four powerful verses that we're going to look at in our time together next time. Uh, after Habakkuk's position of trust that we've looked at this week, we're going to see, or actually, we've looked at his praise of God this week. We're going to look at his position of trust in God next time. You know what I really believe was happening here? I believe that Habakkuk was practicing what Psalm 103 says. And I want to look at Psalm 103, just some selected portions of 
Psalm 103. This is what Habakkuk was doing. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It goes on to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Whoops, we didn't move ahead, did we? There we go. Sorry about that. He does not deal with us. These are part of the benefits according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I love this part. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom over all. What great truth. And what are, let's just pause for a moment, what are some of the benefits and some of the blessings that God has provided for those of us who follow Jesus and know Jesus? Well, I just want to look at a few of them. Some of his blessings and benefits that we're not to forget. For example, he grants us, this is amazing to me, I'll never get over this. He grants us full once for all forgiveness without earning it. Whoa. He transforms us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's amazing. What a benefit. He adopts us into his forever family. Greatest adoption process there could ever be. A few more of his benefits. These are just some of them. He provides us a home in heaven for all eternity. He offers us, I love this one too, personal access 24 hours a day. You know, there's a lot of important people in the world we can't get in to see. But God says, you've got 24 hours a day access. And then another one of his blessings and benefits is this. He gives us a new heart after his heart. You know what, men and women? We have a great God. We have a great God, a great God. Well, let's take a moment just to sort of draw it all together and how can we respond to what we've looked at today? What is a life response we can have? I'm going to suggest two things. The first one, we can all do this, is to make a list and to list his benefits and his faithfulness to you. Actually take the time to write it out. My wife and I were talking about this the other day together. And there's things we so often forget. And as you begin to make a list, you remember, oh, yes, how about that and how about this? So the first step is to make a list of his benefits and his faithfulness to you. And then here's the second life response. Hold a praise party to thank him. Hold a praise party to thank him. Now that praise party, it might be just a party of one. It may just be a party of one. It may be a praise party for your family. It may be a praise party for your friends. It may be a praise party for your small group. But it's one way that we can remember all of his benefits. Make the list 
hold a praise party, and thank him. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you so much for the living word of God. It's just amazing what this book teaches us, Lord. Thank you for for showing me how valuable the word of God is. And thank you for demonstrating to all of us as we've gone through their series so far in Habakkuk, getting ready to end it next week, how valuable this book is to give us perspective about the kinds of things we experience in everyday life. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're teaching us. We thank you for all the benefits that you have given to us. We're grateful, grateful, grateful people. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.